Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Sanders is pragmatic and he is a realist and he knows that he has a moment right now that he didn't have before. I'm Rachel Bade. This is Playbook Deep Dive. And today, that pragmatic word, the P word. Their word was pragmatic. 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 Very pragmatic. pragmatic. Absolutely pragmatic. And people forget, Bernie's really pretty pragmatic on a lot of things. How one of Washington's biggest liberal icons is starting to attract that label. And that's something that his advisors will say as well, which is that it's the reality of a 50-50 Senate. It's where the country is at right now. Even if it's not up his usual alley. And it's the, the fact that there's a Democrat in the presidency and that he's the chair of the budget committee and all these things have aligned and now he finally sees this moment where he can get things that he's been pushing his entire career. Politico White House correspondent Laura Barone Lopez says that the independent from Vermont isn't quite embracing that pragmatic label. In fact, when I was talking to Faz, Faz Shakir, Sanders 2020 campaign manager and current advisor, he prefaced the words he was going to use to describe Sanders by saying, I don't think he'll like me using these. And then he said realist and pragmatic. And well, why don't you listen for yourself? What are a couple adjectives that you would use to describe like Sanders's metamorphosis to the position that he is in now in the Democratic Party? <laughs> You know, he may not like the words, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I'll say it for him. <laughs> but you know, he's certainly a realist about where we're at. Um, you know, he he's both kind of principled about where he set the benchmarks, and then kind of a realist about. You know, he he's he's got a very canny sense. He's no dummy on, on legislation. He's got a very canny sense of uh, how do you keep the coalition together, and he knows his own role. So Bernie's been in Congress for 30 years. He's definitely no dummy on legislation. But even after two presidential runs earned him national stardom and effective ownership of the American left, Bernie has toiled in the Senate minority without a ton of levers to pull. That changed this Congress. As the Senate budget chair and a member of Schumer's leadership team, the 79-year-old is one of the most powerful people in Washington, and he's showing a conciliatory side. Bernie has opposed some of Biden and Schumer's policies and nominees, but never when his vote would tank something important to the Democratic Party. He's also softened his opposition to a bipartisan infrastructure deal, recognizing that he can't alienate his fellow Democrats if he wants to move his own agenda. His job has always been to kind of be the moral compass of this uh, Democratic Party, to, to kind of form the Overton window of where we need to go. Uh, mm -hmm. And what you're seeing, you know, is, is Senator Sanders step up to the plate of being a chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, understanding there's 50 votes and knowing that in order to get those votes, he's going to have to find ways to cobble together a coalition along with the president. After Laura Baron Lopez got off the phone with Faz, she talked to me about how what we're seeing is a huge shift for one of Washington's most powerful people. And it's playing out right now on the national stage in Democrats' $3.5 trillion budget plan. And Sanders, when he spoke to 
our colleague Burgess Everett for the story that we wrote said, it's not that I'm pragmatic when Burgess asked him, you know, why he decided to get on board with $3.5 trillion. So Sanders clearly doesn't really like being associated with that P word because of the fact that he is a progressive and it could potentially, you know, uh, harm his cred with, with other progressives and with the base. So he's got this sort of, this role, he's in the center of everything right now, all these budget negotiations, this large democratic reconciliation bill on healthcare, education, Mm -hmm. uh, family leave, et cetera. But he's sort of employing an interesting strategy right now. And, you know, you just wrote this story about how he gave Washington whiplash when it comes to all these talks. Tell us about that and sort of what did that strategy reveal about him and sort of his role in the party right now? Sanders had initially said that $3.5 trillion for a reconciliation package, which would, as you said, Rachel, include all of these benefits, whether it's elder care, child care, money for higher education, that $3.5 trillion wasn't enough for that package. No, we are going to be fighting right now. We are in the midst of very serious discussion. And within 24 hours, he turned around and said, actually, $3.5 trillion is great. This is the biggest bill that we've seen in, you know, a generation. So this, in many respects, is a transformative piece of legislation. The biggest investment in the working and middle class that we've seen in a generation and that he was fully behind it. And of course, then progressives do fall in line behind him and say, OK, we can live with this. It, it was a, a tactic. You got to give him credit for playing his hand beautifully. Him saying that he wanted more initially to begin with. He came out with a bid of $6 trillion, okay? It was always fantasy. Uh, but by doing that, he could walk back down and claim that $3.5 trillion was somehow reasonable. You know, he pretty much argued that if I hadn't said $6 million, maybe we wouldn't have gotten three point five, And that at first he does have to show that he isn't totally happy with it to then make sure that he's able to bring along the party. And Sanders has very has talked about this a lot recently, which is that he has said that there are 50 Democrats that have to come along in the Senate. Now, I suspect there are 50 different points of view. And he understands that if he wants to see a good piece of his priorities passed, all of those 50 Democrats from Joe Manchin in West Virginia to Bernie Sanders, who is an independent in Vermont, they have to line up in the caucus and they have to be willing to vote for this given the split Senate. So he has repeatedly said that when when reporters have pressed him in the hallways asking why he's supporting this or why he isn't pushing for more than this right now. And, And that isn't to say he won't as the reconciliation negotiations fully get underway. He may try to see what other little things they can get into the bill, But right now, he is pretty much just trying to gather everyone together and hold them together along with Biden and along with Senate Majority Leader Schumer to get behind this $3.5 trillion. Yeah, no, it's really interesting that you see he's clearly seeing himself as rowing in the boat with Biden and and Chuck Schumer in terms of trying to get something done. About the strategy, it's almost like it's, you know, shoot for the moon, at least you'll wind up amongst the stars. Um, But that hardball tactic, it certainly, would you say it worked? I mean, I, I think about Senator Joe Manchin, 
who's one of the most vocal moderates in the Senate from West Virginia, saying he didn't want to go above $2 trillion in this bill. Mm-hmm. And by asking for six, he gets 3.5. So, you know, would you, it sounds like a win. Am I wrong? No, yeah. I mean, I think it certainly worked and that, of course, Sanders didn't get everything he wanted, but he got a, a heck of a lot of what he wanted. Yeah. Yeah, and as I was talking to Fash Shakir, his political advisor on the outside, it's very clear that Sanders sees himself as someone who is inside this tent and operating inside the tent, that he is not on the outside anymore, just trying to prod and push, you know, and, and be loud. And he's inside now, and he's in the meetings with Biden, and he's in the meetings with Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, and he's he's talking to Schumer regularly, and they're all together figuring out their posture that they want to show publicly and how he can get them together to where he wants them to go. Sanders finally has this opportunity where he thinks he can get a lot of what he's been pushing his entire career finally passed into law. What do other senators on the budget committee really think of Sanders or Poach on this? A lot of senators now have a respect, whether they're on the budget committee or not, but ones who aren't necessarily as progressive as Sanders, they have a respect for Sanders that they didn't necessarily have, you know, what, 10 years ago or more. And because of the fact that he, even as he was working with the rest of the budget committee uh, senators, he is very aware of the fact that it can't just be progressives that carry this bill across the line because that's not possible. And so he had to work with Senator Mark Warner, who is much more of a moderate, through this reconciliation package because he's far more focused on that right now. He's not involved in the bipartisan infrastructure talks. He's focused on what will be the Democratic-only bill. So he had to figure out how other members of his committee who are definitely not as progressive as he is, would come along on this reconciliation bill. And so far, you know, he is bringing, uh, uh, you know, the budget committee agreed to this these top line numbers. And so he is working closely with them. And senators uh, so far have not had any really harsh criticism of Sanders during this process. They feel as though he understands what it's going to take to make sure that all the different elements of the the caucus come together. Do we know anything about his relationship with Senators Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema? And I realize they're not on the budget panel, but they're two very important moderate senators who he will need uh, for this budget. His advisor, Fashikir, said that said that he has a relationship with the with the two senators. Now, how often they talk, it, it really remains to be seen especially as they are trying to keep these provisions to combat climate change inside the reconciliation bill, he's going to have to talk to Manchin. And so are the other progressives because those that's one of the biggest points of contention with the bill that Manchin has, which is around climate change because, from, because he comes from a coal state and he come, he very much doesn't want to see, you know, the fossil fuel industry take that big of a hit. So bringing Manchin along is going to be a, a big task for someone like Sanders and other progressives that, that want to see this push through. Yeah, it's interesting. I know Schumer, a couple of years ago, began having these sort of weekly meetings where he would bring in people like Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin and have them sit in a room together and talk about mm-hmm. what they have to do and how they have to get on the same page and 
I, it'll be interesting to see how, so far it seems to have, you know, I mean, we haven't seen anything completely break down between the two of them, but they also have a similar relationship or seems to be good relationship with another person uh, who could perhaps be an intermediary, which is President Joe Biden, right? What can you tell us about Sanders' relationship with Joe Biden? From the outside, it's really surprising how cozy it looks. Joe is a passionate guy. Joe takes these things very, very seriously. Bernie's one of probably a half a dozen people in American history who may not be the nominee, but has had an impact on American politics in a significant way. Early on, it became really clear that Biden was trying to stay very close with Sanders. And this, I'm talking about going all the way back to the campaign. So as soon as Biden became the nominee, he forged a pact with Sanders and and they started working together on these unity committees. In that regard, I have been very pleased that your staff and my staff have been working together. And so that way, Biden was making clear to Sanders, I'm going to pay attention to you on policy. I'm going to need you not just to win the campaign, but to govern. And it's not just going to be, you know, me, the centrist, me, the moderate, working with just like-minded Democrats. Uh, And so they came to agreements on different policy planks, on criminal justice, on immigration, on economic policy, you name it. And so that is where Sanders's operation felt as though they gained some trust with Biden and both ways that, that they could start trusting him and that they would actually have someone to talk to in the White House. And so they're very close with Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain. Sanders has an open door policy with Klain and they communicate regularly. And what was interesting is you saw this, this trust and Sanders working inside the tent playing out at the very beginning of the presidency and it's continued. But when Sanders was pushing for the $15 minimum wage and really wanting to see that in that first reconciliation package, the White House knew what he was going to say and how he was going to push Biden You know, he never tried to attack them without them knowing where his head was at and what he wanted. And when Biden decided to support the unionization uh, of workers in the South and start to more explicitly say that he supported unions uh, and put out videos to that effect, Sanders already knew that those videos were coming and they had been telling the White House, you really should do this, you need to come out forcefully for unions, and then Biden did it. So there's all these examples where the White House has kept Sanders in the loop, Sanders has kept the White House in the loop, and then as we've seen the bipartisan infrastructure negotiation play out and the reconciliation top lines come together... Sanders, unlike a lot of other progressives, has not been out there critically, you know, uh, talking critically about Biden or really just being super loud and saying Biden needs to cut these negotiations, period. You know, he did say he thought it was a waste of time and that he wished that they would just go the reconciliation route from the very beginning. But unlike other progressive, Sanders wasn't attacking Biden directly. He wouldn't name Biden in the interviews. He would just say, I think we need to move on. We need to, we need to just focus on passing this all together. Whereas a lot of other Democrats, especially progressives in the House, 
will go at Biden more directly and will put out very explicit statements saying that this is dangerous, that the president shouldn't be negotiating with Republicans in this manner, that the president, you know, on on a range of issues, not just infrastructure, but also that, you know, he needs to he needs to endorse nuking the filibuster. Like you just don't see Sanders out there as much saying Biden needs to do this, Biden needs to do that. He's telling him privately what he thinks the president should do or or what policies he wants the president to pursue. But he's not out there publicly as much anymore. Yeah, no, speaking of those other more aggressive progressives, yeah. are there any folks on the left who are disappointed with what Sanders is doing right now and want him to take a more in-your-face approach? He definitely was criticized a little bit as he's gone through the reconciliation process. There are progressives who are wondering where the old Bernie Sanders is and why he isn't fighting Biden head on. But I think the majority of those in Congress, ones in the House, ones in the Senate, agree with what Sanders is doing, even if they themselves might be more vocal in their in their criticisms of Biden. Those in the House very much stay in touch with Sanders, Pramila Jayapal, the congresswoman from uh, Washington, who's the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, she regularly huddles with Sanders, and she has never said that she disagrees with the strategy that he is deploying at any given moment so far since Biden's been in office. She may be more direct when she is talking about Biden and more direct in her criticisms of the president, but... She and other progressives very much have agreed with Sanders's strategy so far. Yeah, just sort of speaking to his influence uh, with the House progressives. I was talking to a a pretty looped in in the know mm-hmm. House progressive when the three point five trillion dollar budget number was starting to be floated uh, in the media, and I remember you know this person saying that this is absolutely not going to cut it. A couple hours later. Bernie Sanders is giving a full endorsement and same person comes out <laughs> and says it's great, uh, which again shows just how much they follow him. Yeah. He's still seen as a superstar. As somebody who covered, you know, congressional Republicans when they controlled everything under Trump, you know, the House, the Senate and the White House, mm-hmm. we really saw the emergence of, you know, conservatives and the Freedom Caucus use this strategy to sort of band together, deny votes that were needed to pass something and, you know, win a number of more conservative provisions, basically get more of what they want in the bills that they were um, working on. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, could we see a Freedom Caucus of the left? And I think a lot of folks were looking, you know, thinking they would follow Bernie Sanders to be perhaps, you know, the, the Jim Jordan of the left. But we really haven't seen that. And I'm curious if that surprises you. Or I guess perhaps having covered him and talking to these folks, you're sort of seeing, you know, this is not at all the tact he wants. He's taking the win, the wins he can get, and and he's going to celebrate them. Yeah, I think that if you were following what he was doing after Biden was named the nominee, the fact that they even had these joint committees where they were working on policy together and that they didn't blow up, that you started to see hints of, okay, Sanders is working closely with Biden in a way that he didn't with Hillary Clinton and that he certainly didn't with former President Obama, that maybe that was going to carry over and it clearly has carried over into the presidency. So I don't think that, at least 
Sanders won't be the leader of a kind of freedom caucus of the left. I, I don't see that happening. Now, could the left, could could they become louder and will they start to throw more stones at Biden after infrastructure is done? I think you could see more fissures in the party. After Biden gets his big priority done, which is infrastructure and the reconciliation package, what are Democrats going to pass? What are they going to focus on? What does Biden want to tee up next? And can it even get passed at all and reach his desk, whether it's voting rights, whether it's immigration, if they don't get it in reconciliation? And if they aren't able to pass anything through the Senate after these two big bills, assuming he gets the bipartisan deal, I think you'll see progressives become more and more angry and more and more anxious and upset that a lot of the other priorities they had are just meeting this wall in the Senate. And that at that point, come September, end of September, October, then progressives may finally start to say, okay, we're not just going to sit here anymore and and quietly support your presidency. They, they may go out there uh, more aggressively in their opposition to how Biden is managing his priorities, his agenda, and how he's working with Congress. Because a, a lot of them, you're already seeing little cracks of it. From their view, they don't think he's fighting tooth and nail for voting rights, and they don't understand why he isn't. And, and so after infrastructure is done, does a Freedom Caucus of the left pop up because they're so angry that these other priorities aren't passing? Maybe. I don't think Sanders would be the leader of it. I think Sanders is going to continue to, throughout Biden's presidency, work alongside him, campaign alongside him. If he gets this big reconciliation bill passed through, he's going to become, you know, this campaigner in chief. As as Faz said to us, he said, you're going to see Sanders, if they get this passed, he's going to go out there again on the campaign trail, heading into 2022, heading into 2024, making sure that voters understand that Democrats pass this for them and that they get credit for it. Because right now, there's some polling that suggests that Democrats and Biden are not getting credit for the stimulus package that they passed at the beginning of the year. And voters aren't necessarily associating them with the child tax credit benefit that just started hitting a lot of families' bank accounts. And so if, if they aren't giving Democrats credit, how can Democrats expect to like do well in 22 or do well in 24? So Sanders sees his role going back to campaigner, but not someone who's going to be battling Biden while he's out there on the campaign trail. That's actually really interesting because, you know, Sanders has long been a favorite target of Republicans um, who love their favorite attack on Democrats is, you know, this is the party of socialism. And, you know, look at the Bernie Sanders, you know, Democrats. Bernie Sanders may not have won the last presidential primary, but on the Democratic side, it sure looks like his socialist philosophy is winning the war. I mean, number one, do you think that, you know, they're going to have to rethink that strategy because of his position right now. And number two, if he's going out there campaigning, are we seeing also a shift in the Democrats too, where they're going to be more likely to embrace, you know, his message? Yeah, I think that Sanders and Biden have similar messages, although very different ways of, of going about how to get them. Faz mentioned this, which is that during the campaign, when you heard Biden talk about 
lifting up the working class and lifting up the middle class and talking about Biden and Biden has more and more done this, talking about making corporations pay their fair share and not get out of paying taxes. That sounds like Sanders. And so they are very much aligned. Biden may come from the moderate wing. Sanders may come from the far left democratic socialist wing of the party. But when you would hear them on the stump, especially Biden towards the end of the campaign, and then you hear Biden in office, you see where they're always talking about the working class and they're always talking about helping working people and helping them come out of this pandemic. Do you think that, you know, given this sort of similar talking point about protecting, you know, work, the working class, protecting middle income American, low income Americans. Do you think that Republicans are going to have to change their strategy? Because he has been a target for them for a really long time. But, you know, have the politics shifted and that he no longer will be that boogeyman? I think that they'll certainly try to make him a boogeyman the way they always have. The same way, you know, they're still using Pelosi. They're going to use Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You know, I think we're going to see a litany of those ads where it's the three of them, you know, in grainy images, like the left, you know, socialist agenda. I think Republicans are still going to do that. Will it be as effective? I I think that it'll be harder to use Sanders in that way. Also because Biden's campaign and Biden's presidency and his team is really effective at just blocking that out. And time and time again, when you think that that'll be the thing that hits him or that that could be the thing that brings Biden down, it doesn't. And he just ignores it and he'll blow it off and he'll say, no, this is what this is what I support. And I'm, you know, look at me, I'm a moderate. And if I support it, then then it's not this scary socialist agenda and I'm not a socialist. So. I think that Republicans are going to have a hard time come 2024 figuring out what really sticks to Biden, assuming he runs again. Now, during the midterms, could it be more effective in a district, in a statewide race? Potentially, because Biden's not on the ballot, because it's a midterm, and because in these small head-to-heads, I think arguments like that in swing districts can hurt a Democrat more. Yeah, and House Democrats already have such an uphill battle right now. Um, yeah. Just because traditionally the party in power loses, you know, two dozen seats and all they need to, all Republicans need to flip is like four or five. Right, and they're facing redistricting too, which is going to favor Republicans. It's been super awesome having you. This has been great. So thank you for being here, Laura, and for talking to us. Thank you. And that's our show. Our producers are Adrian Hurst and Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ahmed. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Mike Sapler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. And special thanks to Zach Santon this week. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. We'll take you behind the scenes of Capitol Hill again next week on another Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Rachel Babe. Thanks for listening. And before you go, Laura has a request. Laura, take it away. Hey, Steve Ruschetti. I know you have the president's ear as a top White House advisor. So if you're listening, I have a few questions for you. 
What's it like to golf with the president? And how did you convince Republicans to stay at the negotiating table on infrastructure? Was there any wine involved? Shoot me an email at elberonlopez at politico.com. I'd love to chat with you.